Welcome to the NHS Evolution podcast, everyone. At Evolution NHS, we're committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. The goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams, and we achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS digital industry's best practices. I'm Rose uh, from Evolution Recruitment, and today I'm your host. Today on the panel, we've got four fantastic leaders, and we're discussing benefits realisation for digital-enabled care at home. We've got Jenny West, Bradley Quinn, Paula Wheeler, and Rosie Cole. Just to let everyone know, the views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. So with that, we'll start with introductions and hear from the panellists themselves before we move on to discussing benefits realisation. So Jenny, would you like to come in first, please, and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jenny West. I'm the Associate Director for Digital Change at the Innovation Agency, which is the academic health science network for the northwest coast of England, covering like South Cumbria and Cheshire and Merseyside. Brilliant. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, and Bradley, we'll come to you next. Ah, uh, yeah, thanks, Rose. Uh, I'm Bradley Quinn. I'm the Associate Director of Insight at Health Innovation Manchester. Um, like Jenny, we're one of 58 HSNs across the country supporting uh, adoption of innovation in the health and care system, particularly focused on Greater Manchester. Uh, I like to say that my role overseeing our Insight and Intelligence Directorate is uh, helping to bridge the gap between innovation and data. Um, so that's partly about innovating in how the NHS uses data, uh, making more real-world data like linked care records available for research and development. Uh, but it's also how we ensure innovations are data-driven through things like evaluation and benefits realisation. Um, so really looking forward to today's conversation. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much, Bradley. And um, Paula, I'll come to you next. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Paula Wheeler. I'm a research theme manager with um, the Applied Research Collaboration Northwest Coast. Essentially, that's a nationally funded program. Um, we are one of 15 ARPs, Applied Research Collaborations, across the country, and our geography covers Lancaster, South Cumbria, Cheshire and Merseyside. Uh, my role specifically is almost trying to manage the interface between research and practice. Um, we have a really strong focus on co-production, health inequalities, evaluation and implementation research in our ARC. Uh, and I feel quite strongly that, you know, we need to be seeing and strengthening the role of research in the commission of the variety of different innovative services. So, yeah, again, like Bradley, really interested to see what the conversation holds in the next hour or so. Oh, thank you, Paul, and thanks for joining me. Um, last up, Rosie. Hi, I'm Rose Court. Um, so I'm a GP by background, um, but currently I'm working for Mersey Care, which uh, is a huge community and mental health trust covering the a lot of uh, Liverpool, St Helens and Nosley, Southport and Orbskirk, Formby and South Sefton and North Sefton. I'm sure I've left somewhere out. Um, and, uh, but I'm also the clinical lead for telehealth for Ch um, uh, Cheshire and Merseyside uh, because Merseycare hosts the telehealth hub, which is supporting the virtual ward uh, expansion across the northwest. Um, and I'm also Deputy Chief Medical Officer for Merseycare um, for physical health. Um, so you'd not be surprised, I suppose, my angles about why digital technology improves care for patients, and that's really what, what I'm very passionate about, and patients like to be at home uh, as much as they can, so wherever we can support that with the technology we have is, on, but it is, is where I'm passionate. Oh, brilliant. Oh, thank you very much all for joining me. Um, we'll get on to the content, if that's okay. So we're going to start with your question, Bradley, which is, how might people address some of the co common challenges for benefits realisation of technology-enabled models of care? So, Bradley, if you don't mind um, going ahead and starting us off. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Rose. Um, and I think, you know, it's fair to say for every project I've ever been involved in, benefits realisation has been a core consideration for, for those projects. Um, benefits are fundamentally why we do these things and invest in a new project. It's to make that improvement and see some kind of benefit. Um, but oftentimes benefits, because they usually happen after a project's delivery phase, they can feel a little bit forgotten about. Sometimes it can feel like everyone's gone home and switched the light off on the way out. And that's that's a major challenge, right? How do organisations sustain that commitment in benefits after a project ends? Um, at Health Innovation Manchester, we've been leading on the National Innovation Collaborative for Digital Health on behalf of the HSN network. And that's commissioned by NHS England. Um, and I lead on the benefits work within that commission. 
Uh, and as part of that, we've been working with health systems and ICSs all across the country to build capacity and capability in benefits management around technology-enabled care at home. Um, and that's one of the biggest challenges we see that commitment at the end of the project. Uh, and to address that, what we often say is that organisations have to embed benefits as a job for absolutely everybody. It has to be a part of business as usual, not only that transformation phase. Uh, it has to be a constant process of embedding measurement, continuous improvement, and learning all the way throughout and not stopping when your, when your project concludes. The other big challenge I'd say we see is one around uh, attribution. Uh, so when I'm measuring benefits, how do I know that this impact is down to my new digital care model as opposed to all of the other changes which happened in the system um, at the same time? Um, and addressing that fundamentally comes down to good research design, how you compare data between different groups, either before and after a change or between a control and intervention group or some combination of both potentially. And um, for that quite clean research design, often isn't possible in a real world uncontrolled environment, particularly where innovation is being introduced at pace, like we saw a lot in the in the pandemic. Um, so I'd always encourage people to think about benefits, evaluation and research along this spectrum. Um, they're different disciplines with some key distinctions between them, but with a lot of similarities and similar aims, aims between them as well. Uh, and when you look along that spectrum, oftentimes the needs of different partners will align. Technology-enabled care is such a big part of the NHS now and so central to the future model of how we look after patients. Because of that, everybody is eager to help build the evidence base and understand what works. Um, so I'd always say to local systems, when you're thinking around these challenges of benefits realisation, um, reach out to your partners who have expertise in those areas. Uh, that could be your HSN, it could be a university, it could be a transformation or improvement team, anybody. Uh, but they have the skills to help you know, reinvent the wheel and learn from that best practice. Well, and thank you very much for starting us off, Bradley. And I'll come to you next, Paula, if that's okay. Yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, I was just going to throw a comment in, actually. It's really interesting looking at it from different organisational perspectives. Of course, I'm employed by uh, a research institution, a university, and I think, as Bradley's alluded to, the, the role of researchers and academic institutions in this whole challenge around digitally enabled care at home is really, really important. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a big issue nationally. You know, NHS England are writing policies around it, about what how it can be delivered, etc. Um, I think it's interesting when we talk about what works, really, really important, obviously. I think where sometimes we don't, we don't explore a conversation is what doesn't. And I think the whole issue around virtual wards and tech I think the collaborations that we share and we seek, we need to be honest about the things that we try and aren't as successful as we thought they might be. And I think we need that honesty and the leadership around what works, but more importantly for me, what doesn't, because that allows us to learn. And I think in this space now, whether it be people who are implementing it, commissioning for it, building the evidence base, we need to hold our hands up at certain stages and say, we thought that might work better than it did, but it didn't and use the learning from that to move on in the conversations that we have with our stakeholders and our partners. Thank you, Paul, a great answer. Um, I will come to Rosie, if that's okay. Really interesting points, actually, um, especially about who, what what works. So then I come back, I suppose I'm, I go back to sort of who decides what the benefits are. You know, um, it's uh, quite often when we do benefits realisation work, it's driven by sort of our agendas around KPIs and sustainability of the healthcare system, which, you know, conversely, what's good for the system is not always good for the patient, you know, so uh, lengths of stay, you know, bed days, you know, all of that sort of stuff, use of resources, uh, uh, you know, they've got, we've got to be careful when we're measuring the KPIs, we know, we know that the benefits, who are we measuring them for? And, uh, and then how do we overcome the challenges of measuring those benefits? Because the day, this is a very, you know, as, as we're going along, we're learning new things and we're asking more questions of the data that we're, we're getting out and we don't always have the, the, the right data sets available to us because this is a new way of doing things. You know, we haven't really measured things like, um, you know, if a patient comes out of hospital, how many times do they make contact with community care services? And if they come out earlier, they're more likely to make contact with community services. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Because your contacts, contacts will go up. So I think... Um, You've also got putting the patient back in the, in the middle of it. It's about also what's important to them in terms of the benefits realisation. Because sometimes they even get hung up on what's important for the system. Um, and while sustainability is a very important thing, 
this is at the end of the day about making things better for patients. Perfect. Thank you very much. And Jenny, lastly to you. I mean, I was coming out of the for this moment about why we do this in the first place. I sort of reflected on the journey as to where we got to where we've got to as a, as a group. I, I mean, I started out with benefits realisation during the national programme for IT, which some people will remember with Horrell or, you know, joy depending on where you were within that spectrum. But it was the report that came out after that I really, I always refer back to Robert Wachter wrote the uh, Making IT Happen after the national programme. And he talked about benefits realisation in that piece, particularly because it wasn't very well done as part of the national programme. And in general, the history of benefits realisation for digital hasn't been very well done. The evidence base just isn't where we would like it to be. So we, we venture on these new innovative ideas as an innovation agency, we want innovations to be out there. But people are reluctant to tear them on because there are cupboards full of um, laptops gathering dust because they were bought with all good intentions and, and business cases that had benefits listed that would work and they were never followed up, never realized and never really spoken to the people about how they were going to implement that change and what that really meant to them. And Robert Watson did say in that report, he was saying, you know, short-term improvements to be measured within benefits are about the improvements in safety and quality rather than finance. You'll rarely see financial benefits early doors of any digital implementation. And in fact, in the long term, the history of organizational uh, digitization, the cost savings can take 10 years to materialize. So as Bradley was saying earlier about making this sustainable, the ambition that we've got as a group is that we, our journey has been that we, we kind of looked at what we're doing with digitally enabled care at home. I had the conversation with Rosie, off the cuff conversation about it, where we both had, we can do better, we can yeah. do better than this. And then it's meeting up with Paula from the and saying, look, Paula, can we do this? And Paula saying, yes, we absolutely can do this better. We bring it together as a consortium. We work out what's possible. And then with the support of Janet King and NHS England, she funded us to do a feasibility study. What is it we really want to look at? What are we really thinking of the benefits? And more consciously, can we measure them? Is there data there? So Bradley say, going back to that, making sure the data backs it up. It's all great listing loads of benefits, but if you can't get the data to prove it, you're on a hide into nothing anymore. When you go back to business as usual, everything dies a death and then no evidence comes out to support it. So we we went through that. We did a feasibility piece of work about what do we think the benefits are. We were with clinicians, so Rosie and lots of other clinicians in the system and staff and Paula and the ARC about what do we think we can measure. And then we went out and said, can we get the data for it? So a lot of the big lists we initially had, didn't we? We kind of knocked off to we like, we're never going to get data for that. So something like symptom burden, we were like, we'd really like to look at that. But right now, can we prove it? No. Right, let's put it in the pile where we're going to look at it later when we thought about this more. So I think there's something about really understanding what you're looking at. Can you actually get the data to prove it? So once we've done that, we've then got to the point now where we've got a collective group. We've got really bought in clinicians in this. We've got our academic partners. And what Paula, I'm sure, will come in on as well is that qualitative side of things where might just been a case of before. It's really missing in that evidence space. And that's where the ARC are going to focus their attention around a lot of things because we need to know why patients accept this technology, why they don't. And, you know, all the staff really think about this. What's the impact on carers? We don't, we don't know. And we want to kind of delve a bit deeper into it. So the why is we've got to prove that this digital stuff is doing what it says on the tin, that it is sustainable and using the data, using the right benefits, we can help inform the improvement models. We're already seeing data, aren't we, that we could feed into the ICB that would help them redesign some of their work. Then their transformation team could build that on the evidence. So the, the why is, is quite apparent, but it, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of willing people to get behind it. That's great, Jenny. Must have been very thought-provoking there because both Bradley and Paul has come in. Uh, Bradley, I think you had your hand up first. Do you want to come come in? Yeah, fa fastest finger first. Thanks, Rose. I think <laughs> uh, I think absolutely. There's been a lot of great points there made by Jenny and by Rosie, and I think um, you know what I would say from a benefits perspective is that it absolutely shows the importance of thinking really broadly about different areas and how those different areas are meaningful to different stakeholders. And a lot of the time, people, I think as Jenny alluded to, equate benefits with cash. How much money will be saved by organisation? What kind of return investment like to expect to see? 
Uh, but actually, a good benefit framework covers a lot more than that. It covers a lot of things that both Rosie and Jenny mentioned earlier. And uh, for my sins, I'm an economist by background. So, of course, a big part of that has to be about demonstrating good value for money for the public purse and evidencing benefits being realised. Um, and those cash releases and benefits are important for finance folk and how we might sustain models longer term, as I'm sure we'll talk about. And, but we should also consider some of those social and public benefits as well, and um, areas that don't necessarily release cash directly, but still create an improvement in well-being or experience for staff and patients. Then um, some of the best benefit approaches which I've seen take a blended approach and look at these things in combination. Um, a lot of the time people talk about those as, as soft benefits, but they're anything but soft benefits actually. They make a, a real difference in people's lives and they can and should be measured. Um, so for an example of that, we know digital care models have a real noticeable impact on patient activation, how involved people feel in their care, levels of self-management, and that then impacts on adherence to treatment, improving outcomes, etc. Um, so all these things that I mentioned are important areas in their own rights. They're definitely not soft benefits as they often get described. Fantastic. Thanks, Bradley. And uh, Paula, would you like to add to that? Yeah, it's just following on. I mean, I'm a public health specialist by background, so I look, I look at populations and not the individual. So I'm very much interested in the community benefits. And um, interesting, um, Rosie with her GP hat on was talking about uh, benefits to who. Um, for me, and the qualitative piece that I'm, I'm leading on, we're really interested in that sort of story of a patient, a family, a carer when they've left hospital albeit that that technology will follow them to their own home. We know from the evidence that people like to be in their own home. You get, you know, there's evidence around people getting well more quickly uh, when, when they're at the home, surrounded by people, by family, by neighbours, whatever. But what if they don't have that support network? And I'm really interested around, obviously, the clinical inclusion criteria and people being transferred and being offered the opportunity to have tech-enabled care at home. But what about some of the social uh, understandings around that? We know, you know, cost of living crisis are people anxious about the cost of some of this tech might might not be real um anxiety to have but i think it's a real opportunity to have um conversations about what's what will you what environment will that person be going home to you know if it's an elderly frail man who's 80 is he going home to some care network are we relying on other services social care district nurses whatever where's that going so a benefit in a hospital might not be a benefit in social care because some resources might be being used in either social care district nursing teams. The voluntary sector are doing quite a lot of work in supporting these communities there. So I'm really interested in where the benefits are out with of the clinical setting. And I think it's one of the the, the um, outputs in our qualitative piece is understanding potentially some of those social vulnerabilities of the people that might be really interested in the tech, maybe have anxieties or maybe not an environment in a home where it's conducive to being that that being offered as a as a solution for them being out of hospital. Brilliant. Uh, moving on to the the next question, uh, Jenny. I think you already started to answer some of this, but what why do this at all, and what does it mean for the people it affects? Do you want to add add on from that, Jenny? Yeah, I mean that's sort of just building on what I said before, and I think I'm drawn back to what Bradley said as well about looking at it more in an ecosystem. Traditionally, when we've done a lot of benefits, we do it in so, for example, we've talked about this today a bit about virtual wards. So you know, you do a benefits piece just on virtual wards, but actually, it's not about that. It's about when do they step down and do they pick up long-term condition monitoring? Well, that's the benefits of long-term condition monitoring. And then, what? How does that appear and work? So you've got to. You can't just look in isolation of one project, which is traditional. You do your business case, you have your benefits, you measure those, but it's in isolation of that very specific piece of work. I think particularly when we're looking at digitally enabled care at home, we need to be thinking that much wider because it, it impacts further down the line and we want to show the impacts further down the line. We want to know that virtual wards maybe stabilises a patient, but then if you pick them up on long-term conditioning, you extend that care for that patient and you make sure they stay at home for much, much longer. And if they're frail, that might prevent some deconditioning if they ended up in hospital. So you want to be to link those up. You have to understand the whole journey. You have to see digital as part of a full ecosystem. And when you add a bit in, you're not just that bit you're seeing benefits for. You want to see how it affects the whole ecosystem. And I think as we're moving into this more digitized health and social care world with telecare and telehealth, they're going to interact. They cross over much more. Whenever we think about implementing something along that journey, we can't just think about that bit of technology. 
we've got to think about the whole bit the unintended consequences of putting things in you know paul has talked about a lot don't do we exacerbate any health inequalities we need to be understanding that the disbenefits already with some of the work we've done we've kind of thought that might be a disbenefit keep an eye on that because we need to report that just as much as we would need to report a real benefit within this because somebody's going to have to do something about that at some point i think it was cur and burnout wasn't it paul we were talking out and that we were saying it's all well and good putting people more at home, but actually how, what is the impact to a carer on that? And do we exacerbate care and burnout within it? So we've got to take that away and have another, and, and that's another line of inquiry to look at. So it, I think moving forward, we can't just think in isolation for digital technologies. We've got to think in that ecosystem. And that, and that proves the why to the patients. They understand then why it's being done. Um, the ICBs know why they're investing in it. We get an evidence base so we can be a bit more open about sharing around the country and learning done well. Um, so, yeah, th th there's a lot of why to it. I mean, I, I could have done it before, but I think that's just expanding a little bit on it. That's excellent. Thank you, Jenny. Um, Rosie, I'll come to you next. Um, yeah, I suppose it's just simplistically for me, it's um, why would you do this? Well, for me, it's always got to be about what's, what's best for uh, the, the client or the patient, you know, and just in its simplistic terms, just listening to, um, I was fortunate to sit on a HET panel where three patients had had uh, virtual ward uh, technology and, you know, been stepped down and they were very clear and loud in the why, which was, why would we want to be in hospital if we can come home, you know, literally, that was, it was as simple as that. If, if you can provide the same quality of care for me and my virtual ward is as good as a hospital ward in terms of safety, care quality risk uh, reduction then I, I want to be at home I don't want to be in the hospital you know um, and once you can get the technology to cover all of those pieces um, then for the for the patient uh, they were, they were uh, loud and clear one of one of the I always remember one of the patients actually said you should put it as a storyline in Coronation Street so more people know about it you know because he was he was so so passionate about why it worked for them you know um there will always be the, the sustainability why and the sort of, you know, where the benefit for the acute sector in terms of, you know, uh, or the pressure in terms of resources and beds. And then there's the why about using it differently in community care and help we're going to workforce and a later question. But um, ultimately, the, the, the why is that people do get better more quickly at home. And the reason we haven't done it before um, is because we haven't had the reassurance of the technology. So that sort of black hole patients fall into when they're discharged out of hospital where you're thinking, are they doing all right or aren't they doing all right? The technology gives you the reassurance that at any point if anything's going going uh, going a bit a bit wrong, you can you can identify that earlier than rather than reaching crisis points. So it you know, um ultimately the technology has empowered us to be able to do that. And not only empowered us, but it empowers the patient to be um, very much involved in their in their their care, and they start to, with the feedback. They start to understand their own conditions, and they can be very much partners in their own care rather than having it done to them all the time. So, I, I think that's really important. Excellent. And uh, Paula, do you want to add on to the why? Yeah, I mean, not not a lot to add to what um, Rosie and Jenny said, other than it's that it is the importance of that collective voice. I mean, this is a sort of an intervention and, and things that are being rolled out nationally. I think it's really crucial that we're involving patients in that dialogue, you know, and it's reassuring that Rosie said she's, you know, been involved with that understanding of that collective patient voice, because that is part of the intel and part of the data that we've got that should be being thought about when we're rolling services out. I think as well, the why do, I think we've, we've got, it's certainly in the Northwest, really good uh, opportunities to understand why we're doing it, but how it might be different in different contexts, in different places, because communities are different, hospital setups are different, the, the stakeholder groups are different. But I think one of the sort of the learning points and the USPs for, for me working as part of this consortia is that everyone's voice is being considered. So, you know, big, you know, big cute trust, are working with third sector organisations that are listening to patients who've been stepped down. So there's a real, real richness in that that data we're collecting. It's not just numbers, numbers, numbers. There's a narrative and a story to it that's informing the 
the why we're doing it. So I think that's really important. Thank you very much. And I'll come to you, Bradley. Yeah, especially thanks, Rose. I think I think loads of great points and um, uh, a lot of what, what I would have touched on um, has already been covered. I think for me, probably just the final thing to say on this is, you know, absolutely over time, there's been a, there's an expectation from patients that they have access to this kind of digital care model. We have digital in every other aspect of our lives, don't we? About mobile phones and delivery and how we order things, etc. Why would you not have access to some kind of digital healthcare model? And um, particularly now that we've got the technology in the way that Rose it sounds like six million dollar man, doesn't it? When I say it like that, but you know, we've 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 got the technology to do that safely for patients to offer a quality of care which is absolutely comparable to what you'd get in an acute setting. Uh, why would we not offer that and enable people to stay for longer at home? That's how people prefer to be. So there's absolutely a patient expectation there as well as a clinical and a system expectation too. Just triggered a memory for me. So there's a really there's some really good work being done by Brian Dolan about the last thousand days, and and essentially it says if you if where if you knew you had a thousand days left, where would you want to spend them? You know, and but the point is you'll never know whether you're at the start of your last thousand days. So whatever we're doing, we should be trying to keep people in the place where they're happiest, um, and that is back in their homes. So this very much fits into the into that agenda. Well, oh, what a round off to that question then. Um, moving on then to Paula's. Paula, you'd like to delve into accessibility and feasibility from a patient and family angle. That is the criteria if they're asked if they want this care at home. So we'll start off with, with you, Paula, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've touched on some of the potential maybe disbenefits around inequality and inequity. Um, and we, I touched on earlier about the, you know, the clinical inclusion criteria for people being stepped down into a virtual ward and being able to access tech at home. Um, again, I think it's really crucial that we talk to other stakeholders that might be working in the community or in primary care to understand a bit more about that patient environment. What what kind of home are they going home to? You know, have they got access to the internet? And I know Bradley's alluded to that patients expect it. Some patients don't want it, I would suggest, and maybe don't feel confident in that digital experience being extended to their healthcare provision. They might be, they might feel okay booking holidays and doing banking even, but then, you know, they've been responsible for being um, involved in their own care. I think that needs some exploration and that's part of the qualitative piece um, that we're, we're doing. I think it's just understanding the circumstances in which people go home to, not just the physical around their house, et cetera, but what... Um, social networks have they got to go home to or, or is it that another profession or another bit of our health and care system is picking that up and if they are then we need to know about it because it needs to be factored into that sort of cost benefit that economic evaluation and understanding where the benefits and disbenefits are and then sort of factored into that I think considering the communication I mean we hear every day you know stories of people saying this organization in in my healthcare story didn't speak to that one and as a consequence I've received a disbenefit so I think there's a real opportunity in this space to talk to all the various stakeholders and organizations that are involved to make sure they are understanding of what that patient is being returned home to so I think it's a consideration that's not always picked up in the the quantitative number crunching about equity and inequalities because I think as well quite starkly there could be potential opportunities to be to inversely um, cause inequalities by just having clinical criteria and I know this is just the start of the journey but I think what we need to be mindful of is don't don't just let the tech tell the story when there's lots of other narratives and stories to be added on to the benefits of the tech you know it's not a shiny new toy that we just take on we need as I think it was Jenny who said there's lots of other things that we need to take into consideration as well so I think it's just making sure that they are included in that conversation. And I'll come to Jenny next then. Uh, I suppose just, yeah, I mean, just adding all what Paul has said about how it's with some of the people we've spoken to. So it isn't just about the numbers, but when we spoke to, I think Cheshire, we had a side meeting with them and they've done loads of work with care homes actually just at the moment. And it's been really interesting about that. How they've said they've managed to kind of get the staff really confident in that and not and understanding that they can look after those patients, keep them where they are and they're comfortable with it because one of the things we were said we were going to look at was confidence wasn't it of clinicians of staff of carers because you've got to trust this technology with the greatest will in the world it could be amazing but if you don't trust it and know that you're going to get a response and that it's not going to you know create 
inequalities around where, you know, it's not going to increase your electricity bill. You've got to trust that it's going to do what it's going to do. Within the care homes, because those staff aren't necessarily clinical staff, them knowing that they can just so if they bring a patient in who's not feeling so good, do up a couple of really light readings, nothing too technical, then be able to just know they can get in touch with somebody. They don't have to call the ambulance, which means that patient then is taken away from that home and they're kept where they are, they're kept comfortable. They get the advice they need really quickly. And therefore, and that patient is then happy. The staff are like, yeah, no, we can deal with this and we know somebody's coming. We know this person's going to get looked after. And we're going to do a bit of a case study on, on that work. So again, it's looking at it in the round because the, the digital technology there is really quite basic. It's not even hooked up a lot of it. It's just like a blood pressure monitor and a pulse oximeter thing that they've got that they could just do. So a few little readings. It's not even digitally connected to anything. They're just contacting the staff, but they know they're going to get a response. They know somebody will come and see them. They know they'll get a clinician's intervention if they, if they need that. And that makes everybody much more comfortable, happy. They don't have to call the ambulance service um, and, and the patient that they're getting seen and they're being kept well. So we know that they're being, they're, lo they're looked after. So there's a lot in that, in making sure that we don't strictly look at the data. We don't really look at the cost. We look at that whole, and when we looked at the data, didn't we, um, Rosie and Paul, originally we looked at that lit review. The qualitative piece was really lacking. There isn't much there that kind of backs up any of this as a solid evidence base. Um, so I think it's an area we you know, got to really concentrate on and overlay the data. The data is really important. It tells a story. But without that secondary layer of the qualitative piece, without those case studies that just allow people to talk through their experience of it, it's all a bit one-dimensional and, you know, only appeals to a finance director or you know, one particular group of people, we needed to appeal to to everybody and everybody understand what's in it for them. Great. Thank you. Um, Bradley? Yeah, thanks. I think it's a really interesting conversation. And, you know, for me, this is all about how we uh, address inequalities and, and think about health inequalities. Um, you know, it's about having the option available for digital that people that want to consider it, but also co-designing models, the right model for local people together with local people. Uh, the truth is, in our experience with the Innovation Collaborative in particular, in evaluating these services, the vast majority of people and patients are supportive of digital care at home once they've got that assurance that it's safe, it's effective, and they know that kind of clinical support is there. Um, we've seen that, for example, in our recent evaluation of the COPD virtual ward that was established by Andy Barlow and the team in West Hertfordshire. Um, when we've spoken to patients, families, carers, once they've had those initial concerns addressed, they recognise it's a really positive move for the NHS and they see the benefit and how it empowers them within their own care too. Um, there are some really straightforward, quite simple ways that people are addressing that, stuff like patient information and frequently asked questions. But there's also cases where we've seen systems using data in a really innovative way to plan services that meet the needs of local populations as well. Um, so that can be about understanding health inequalities, the different communities in your area, making sure the services you're providing are accessible to people of different backgrounds, like onboarding information available in different languages, for example. And um, But in other examples, that could be about using data to target a new virtual ward or long-term condition uh, monitoring around specific conditions of areas of highest need and greatest need. And thinking about, I think as Jenny mentioned, technology-enabled care as part of a wider pathway of prevention and anticipatory care and the connections between those different components. Um, so absolutely, I'd say, yep, patients are very supportive of these kind of models, but the onus is absolutely on the system to design pathways that don't inadvertently exclude people. Uh, if this is going to be a fundamental part of the future NHS, it has to work for absolutely everybody. Excellent. And Rosie, if you don't mind drawing that question to a close. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting point. So I suppose the accessibility bit and um, the sort of not winding inequalities, I think that's really key. Um, because there's also quite often, every time I've been on a panel call, uh, a call about these sort of things, the first thing that always comes up is, oh, yes, but you're going to, you know, disenfranchise older people. They're not going to be able to use it and what have you. And actually, just even this morning, looking at some of the early data we've got back, sort of over, nearly 50% of the people who've been using the technology were over 70, you know, which suggests that, you know, that, that uh, we shouldn't use our bias against the use of technology in the, the older age group about reasons as to not offer it to them. You know, where we need to make sure that, um, but 
that we might we don't put our own prejudices around technology um in when clinicians are offering things on, on virtual wards um interestingly probably not as uh, not unsurprisingly the ethnicity cohort is quite low on the so again you know it's about making that technology available in a way that's accessible so we Mercy we have a telehealth hub which has been doing telehealth now since you know 2011-12 and what we realize you need a very ex experienced dedicated onboarding team who know about the who know the technology well who know how to support the patient well if you need to have a digital body to support the patient and it's about um you know a bit like when you go into a ward you'll be welcomed into the ward and there'll be a hca that takes all your questions about what you need and your preferences and what you you know how your stay is going to be it's no difference to a virtual ward out in the, the community you need somebody to support you in the same way it's no good just giving the person a bit of technology and they have showing way to press a few buttons and then waving them goodbye you know that um that, that support is really important um but and then the other point about it always it's telehealth so technology is one part the clinical support is the other bit and it will only be feasible if the clinical support is robust so this means as we go forward it's about using uh understanding of what the clinical support looks like and how we we put that into job plans for uh, a, a different consultant model if we're using consultant oversight or nurse consultant oversight because without that clear clinical line of accountability um you can give the patient all the technology they need that uh, they've got but they're not going to be feeling safe um and finally as we start you for accessibility this should feed into our procurement for technology and solutions uh, it feels like that so there's so many technology solutions coming out of the woodwork now um with throwing things at you but is is it what we need you know that the argument against single point monitoring continuous monitoring if we're continuously monitoring people, actually, we're likely to increase the number of interventions we have, because actually, that you might get natural changes in their their physical parameters that you act upon. Whereas, if you do it, if you do it, not not measure them alongside the clinical symptoms, you probably they would have probably resolved. So again, when we're looking at technology partners, we need to be using um, our information around accessibility to drive the technology to give us what we need, rather than the technology driving. The solution for the patients. Great point, Rosie. And I think that moves us on to the next um, question as well, which is you again, Rosie. Um, given the current workforce challenge, is this the future of community delivered care? So, would you like to start us off? Yeah. So, whenever when I started this back, I think it was two thousand and twenty. I always used to start off with uh, telling you, this isn't a digital uh, program; it's an out of hospital transformation program. Um, because it is about delivering that care differently. So examples that I give that if you have a patient out in the community with heart failure and that patient would have normally had te uh, you know, daily visits from the nurse to measure their their physical parameters and ask them of their symptom questions, if that can be replaced by um, the patient being empowered to answer those questions themselves using a digital medium and measure those parameters themselves, that potentially that's 10 visits you reduced and actually that then gives the, the nurse uh, the chance to see the patients who definitely need to see her, the, the people that she will need to examine physically because the, their parameters are, are under scope. So you can start to see how we, is we use our community services differently, but we also need to recognise that probably there's going to be a need for more community services. Um, you know, rather than just meaning less contact with patients, you know. So um, I, I do think it's about, the, I do think it's the future of our hospital care because it will empower us to deliver care in the right place at the right time and use it for early identification. But um, we might call it a disbenefit, the fact that there'll be more community visits, but actually for the patient, having more community care is a, is a preferred option to being in the hospital. So for me, I think, yes, it is about our hospital transformation. Great, thank you very much. And Bradley, do you want to add to that? Yeah, no, absolutely, Rose. Um, and I think exactly as Rosie said, the technology is just one part of that complex change in the care model. Uh, it's kind of the digital on top of on top of all the other change in the pathway. And um, I, I, I think I sound a bit like Mr. Luddy, but when we're thinking about the future, the question of financial sustainability, I suppose those workforce considerations have to be taken into account, don't we? And you know, we are in a system under immense pressure but at the same time the nhs is transforming in this new world of rcs's and integrating budgets etc which which presents some real opportunities uh, when we're thinking about how we sustain good innovation like this and overcome 
that pilotitis that we see so commonly in the NHS where things are adopted at scale. Um, and that means thinking really holistically about cost, not only the technology, but the workforce implications too. Um, we have seen some really innovative approaches to that across the country. So, um, for example, I can think of areas like Airedale, who've had uh, really experienced nurses who are about to leave the workforce, who were then able to retrain and support remote monitoring because it has less of a physical demand with lifting patients, etc. Um, so there are opportunities there in how we utilise the existing workforce. Um, but we also have to think about how technology-enabled care moves demand around the system and puts some of that burden into community services. And um, It moves care closer to home for patients, and that's absolutely the right thing to do. Um, but it does mean the NHS has to think in an even more integrated way about funding models and financial flows. Um, the organisation that pays isn't always the organisation that benefits, and that leads to quite complex arrangements. Um, how do we account for that longer term? Uh, well, unless there's more, more funding available, in some cases that means making choices about what other services can be approached differently or repurposed to support technology-enabled care at home. Um, and that might mean shifting a proportion of staff to support these digital models. Um, ultimately, it has to be a blended approach. It's never going to fully replace in-person care. It's about the right care at the right time in the right place for patients, depending on what most suits them. Um, and when you work for Spire, I can only imagine that's a very tricky balance to get right, but one that systems are increasingly having to grapple with. Uh, what that balance look like, looks like and how it might change over time, uh, it's really challenging, but it does mean investing more in community capacity in particular, I think. Thank you, Bradley. And Paula, you wanted to come in at the end of Rosie's um, comment. Sorry about that. No, it's fine, because Bradley touched on some, because I was just writing funding, funding, funding. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think I would be with my sort of population health head on, a really strong voice for the, an advocate for the third sector who are picking up quite a lot of support in this space. So I think when we're talking about funding models, absolutely, some of the money needs to follow where we want those professionals to be. Uh, and I think there is a role, we already know through digital buddying schemes that we're aware of in our local systems, that the third sector is supporting some of these patients and families. In, the, in this space around tech-enabled care at home. And we saw very much in, you know, during the pandemic, the absolute uh, expertise and some of the, you know, picking up of the local system delivery that the, the, the sector did. And I don't think they always got the recognition around that. Or if they did get recognition, they didn't get resource. Um, so I think we need to think about, we've got a really strong sector in the Northwest Coast around community. Um, so we need to be thinking about how we utilize that expertise. I mean, at the end of the day, they know their communities of place, I would suggest, more than some of the clinic clinicians going into those homes and those environments. So let's utilise that expertise when we're thinking about that that sort of continuum of, continuum of service. For me, I mean, I've touched on it several times now. It's around the leadership around this because money can sort of um, determine where stuff goes, you know, especially with, you know, the, the creation and this transformative space that we're in now around ICB. It needs brave leadership to say, you know, you, you coined it well, actually, Bradley, when you said that the money might come from organisation A, but they're not going to feel the benefit or certainly not the immediate benefit. It takes a brave leader to say, you can use some of my budget for something over there that we might not be able to transact back into a benefit directly for the organisation. But we need to think about population systems and population benefits when we've got the, uh, the creation of the ICB. So for me, these future workforce challenges might not always sit in the in the clinical field might be out with in that caring environment, certainly in the third sector. So I'd really advocate for thinking about what the, the VCFSE sector can offer as potential solutions around tech-enabled care. That's great, Paula. Um, and lastly, we'll come to Jenny, unless anyone wants to add after that, they're more than welcome to, but Jenny, to round off that that uh, workforce challenge question. I mean, I think whenever we start out there, when we started this piece of work, we kept getting people saying it's about workforce efficiencies. We've got to see where the efficiencies are. And the more we talk about this, the more we speak to the people who are actually doing the site work. That's not something they're kind of seeing. They're saying, well, you know, workforce might come in the future. But at the moment, we are, like you said, having to ramp up, having more staff around it. It is going to be more labour intensive. So I don't know that we could prove those workforce efficiencies so much. We can maybe say how... So one thing came out with Sefton where they said on their COPD pathway, the virtual was allows them to do one visit instead of five. So there's an efficiency there, I suppose. But then they want to use that time to develop preventative work. So we've talked about then that. What's that play space offer 
to offer the preventative services for those COPD patients or that they might want to address some of the misdiagnosis so they want to bring other teams in to kind of support that from the hospitals. So I think we've just got to temper that workforce efficiencies line of questioning with some of this because it's, there is going to be more staff being able to put out there and more people have to be trained in the community services um, side of things if we want to really build that up. So I think there's something about that with our benefits hats on just to kind of um, understand that a bit more. But I think the work that we are doing and the data that we're gathering around this from the qualitative and the quantitative side, we're starting to see, as Paula mentioned earlier, that story start to emerge about this and thinking, if we feed that into the IDCB, that helps them say, actually, if we invest in this at place, that's going to have that direct impact on secondary care. And with the new model hospitals program, a lot of those new hospitals are being designed with less beds. So they're not going to be able to cope with the capacities they're coping with now. So that service has to increase. If we've got less beds in secondary care as they build up the new model, the new hospitals as they're coming out. So that has to kind of follow that the community has got the capacity to support it and the right services wrapped around to help people. So getting thinking about it in that, in that holistic picture, not in a narrow focus but the benefits work and the data that we're gathering helps to tell the story of the whole thing and then it might help us identify what well, a place if you do these services you're going to help back up all of that so i think it's that circle of life with all of this that we can help design and we could give the icb all the data all the evidence they need to help them think through what might the next step be what's the workforce that they're going to need to deliver that because if we need, and as Paul said about the charities, we've already got HUK doing some really great work about early supported discharge, filling a gap where social services won't pick them up or the NHS would never pick them up. House cleaning, for example, or buying the right cutlery or some curtains for somebody to help them feel safe. So they can fill that gap and help support people get them out of hospital. And we've got the Red Cross looking at how they manage digital buddies things. So there are, the charity says are already thinking we could do a lot here. We can help out. I think it's to, like um, Paul says, taking advantage of that as well. Brilliant. Thanks, Jenny. And Rosie, you wanted to circle yeah. back round? Yeah, just a couple of little things just uh, picked up. Um, one of the most exciting things for me about the being involved in virtual world has been the collaboration across the community and uh, secondary care sectors and primary care. And I suppose that one thing that we've started to see is centralised and versus localised models. So centralise where you, you need to, so do everything, do the tech, them. for us it's about doing the monitoring at scale, you know, um, and then the localised bit is the immediate, the immediate deliver of that pathway. But that's a different way of working rather than lots of replicated little uh, localised models, because again, that's about sustainability and also, I suppose, the financial benefit of that in that you're doing the technology once. But as we build, do this, we're going to. It's also we're going to need a new digital workforce. So we will have the people coming back. There is, you know, the re, the, re, the people who, uh, uh, and we'll have retention of people, maybe more parents who, you know, need to look after the children. They can fit the digital, um, digital sort of working around their home. But I think we need to then think about the confidence, and that's about then how the uh, how we build this into the curriculum and into the education of our workforce going forward as that, that digital is part of care delivery going forward, rather than the people who um, embrace technology being the only ones who want to work in that field. We have to empower everybody think that's a, a viable a viable option as part of the care they'll be, they'll be delivering. Some fantastic points made today. Um, would anyone else like to add on from any of the topic in general today? No, just Joseph. No, just oh, go on, Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Uh, I think it's just, it's, I mean, even this conversation today, there's always learning to be had. I mean, we meet regularly. And even now I'm scribbling things down thinking, well, I'm, I've not thought about that. Oh, and we need to think about this. And so I think this conversation is really emerging. There's lots of solutions that are happening at different points on the journey. But I think it's a real good opportunity. And I mean, I just want to keep going on about the quality and the strength of the collaboration in the Northwest uh, Coast. It really is there. People are, you know, positively challenging people's perceptions, but in a constructive way. There's, there's so much that's gone on since Jenny and I met in Marks and Spencer's Cafe that like nearly took 18 months ago, just to have a coffee and share some of this understanding that's now, you know, uh, ended in like two projects and working with us at the ARC and a quality piece. So 
everyone's voice is really listened to. And we're, we're trying, certainly in the project that Jenny and Rosie and I are involved in, we're tweaking it at every, every meeting because we're recognising and taking on board the, some of the challenges, some of the, the feedback that we're getting from people working in it. So, yeah, I, I would, it's just a real strong shout out to say it's a, it's, it's a great space to be working in because you really feel listened to and that each of the component parts are all being addressed and worked towards. It does sound like a great project, to be honest. Um, Bradley, you'd like to add? Yeah, thanks, Rose. I mean, it's been a fascinating conversation. I think we probably could have sat here all, all morning, couldn't we, for three or four hours, probably talking about virtual wars and technology enabled care at home. And I think, you know, to echo what Paula said, it, it just shows how exciting this space is. You know, that real feeling of collaboration. Obviously, we'll, we'll fly the flag for the North West, including Greater Manchester, but even across the country that we've seen through the National Innovation Collaborative, everybody learning and sharing through this journey as we've kind of moved through the adoption of this kind of digital technology at scale. It's such an exciting place with massive opportunities for the NHS as we move forward. Um, it's been really interesting conversation this morning. Fantastic. Jenny and Rosie. <laughs> I was just going to come in to say, I think if anybody's embarking on this journey, I think what we've all just covered there, you need a collaboration. You need that group of voices. It's never one person's job. You might have a benefits person that doing the book. In isolation, they can't do this. The work that we've done has taken, we've taken Rosie and a group of other clinicians, it's taken Paula and her, the, the academic group, it's taken the innovation agency, it's taken us ringing Bradley, everybody going, Bradley, help us think this through, how are we going to do that and understand stuff? It's taken a whole, a large group of people, as Paula said, for like nearly 80 months, probably ordering on two years at this point to kind of get to a stage where we're we're moving forward and we're iterating as we go along so we, it can't, you have to think of it as a bigger piece of work it can't just be seen i mean we need we don't we've needed a data scientist we brought Kate, a graduate data science on board casey and that level of knowledge as well on health economists coming into it it's a big group it can't be done in isolation so so it's just everybody's thinking of embarking on the journey get yourself some really good people around you that you can meet in cafes and have a coffee <laughs> with and talk it through I was just going to say, Jenny, you never got me an M&S coffin, right? <laughs> oh, we'll do that next. Oh, Bradley, definitely. <laughs> Feeling a bit left out there. I was actually going to say this uh, whole podcast episode has been really, really interesting. Um, and I, I feel honoured to be a part of it and learning about the, the project that you've all embarked on. It sounds fascinating. Um, and I just want to say thank you very much to you all for joining me today and sharing your thoughts in today's conversation. The guests today for everyone listening, as you know, have been Rosie, Jenny, Paula and Bradley. Uh, if you're hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, please drop me a message too. Um, I'm Rose Sullivan. You can find me on LinkedIn or email me at rose.sullivan at evolution-contract.co.uk or you can visit us on our website. Thank you very much for everyone and thanks for listening at home as well. And we hope you can join us next time.